Welcome to the uh, Monday Night Chat Show. This week I have Chris Cooper. Chris is a very good, interesting person. He's been a friend of mine for 15 years and he runs on Voice America, the Business Elevation Show. Prior to that, Chris was a negotiator, a procurement expert and um, ran his own procurement agency where he fell out with uh, a number of people because they had different goals to him. I pick up this interview as I asked Chris about why he went off to work for Mars. I'll always remember, yeah, I remember never forget those uh, trucks blocking the entrance and suddenly finding I didn't have a job. Uh, and uh, a best friend of mine contacted me and said, oh, Mars are advertising and I put my name forward and uh, uh, and uh, thankfully for me, I got through the sort of seven stages and my friend didn't and I ended up working for, for Mars and I progressed through sales and marketing and training and eventually wanted to get a, a sense of what happened on the other side and uh, how, you know, how did how did procurement procurement work and I found myself looking after the marketing services rosters at Mars so I looked after the, the buying of sales promotions and sponsorship and I found myself negotiating um, pantomimes with Milky Way magic um, stars and, uh, and creating um, negotiating the deals around a massive uh, promotion around celebrations when it launched um, for a big train that went around the country with lots of celebrities on it and people getting married and things like that and design agencies and things like uh, negotiations with Comic Relief and then I, I went on to United Biscuits and ran that kind of a function, uh, developed it from just myself to having teams in France and Belgium, Holland, Spain, Finland, Poland and then taking responsibility for ingredients um, uh, procurement for 15 factories. Um, so I was the biggest, um, most significant buyer of white powder in Europe. It was actually biscuit flour, uh, nothing, uh, <laughs> I bought over 100,000 tonnes a year of, uh, of biscuit and cake flour and, uh, and massa flour for um, tortilla chips and all that sort of thing. And when you're working in procurement, what's the three key issues really that you've got to look at? Because it is quite different to just raw negotiating, isn't it? Oh, gosh. Um, I think probably you've got to be very mindful, obviously, of what's going on in the market. I mean, if you're buying something like flour, you know, a, a difference of a pound made on the price made, I can't remember what it, I think it was maybe like nearly a million pounds, you know, on a pound of flour. So you had to really, really understand the dynamics of, uh, of what was going on in each in the market. So I think with, with those sorts of roles, you've got to have your ear to the ground, I think is really really, really important and, and follow, the, follow those marketplaces. So we would develop little strategies by uh, each of the different um, areas that we operated in. Um, I think relationships is really, really important. Uh, I think that's one of the things I particularly enjoyed was getting to know uh, different people, um, different suppliers and, uh, and be able to negotiate well. I found myself certainly when I have my own consultancy involved in some big negotiations on some massive, massive spends. And, you know, that relationship, I think, uh, was something I didn't realise till afterwards that I was quite good at, you know, being being able to be likeable, but also to kind of understand the detail. Um, I think the other thing was interesting was culture. I, I found it fascinating with when buying internationally, you know, how how different suppliers expected to buy from you. You know, I, there was muggins here would turn up uh, to buy, buy, to negotiate a flour contract with a flour miller in France. And uh, I'd want to, I had lots of, lots of time, it was a 
one of a number of big negotiations. I'd be doing a little tour and all the flour miller wanted to do was take me out for lunch and get me drunk, basically. Uh, and then the second time you went, they might want to might want to do a bit of that, but take you through the market. And on the third time, that's when you negotiated price. And that was quite hard as a Brit who was short of time, you know, speeding up that process without uh, without destroying the relationship. So I suppose being aware internationally and then when you were running international teams of buyers, you know, understanding those, their cultural differences and the way they operated and how, how was it was different to you and had some advantages sometimes. I'd go and sit on people's desks like the MD in France and, uh, and where all of the French team was scared stiff of him. I'd just walk in his office and have a chat. I didn't know any different, and that would some would he liked that actually. Um, so yeah, probably probably understand the market um, relationships and be very mindful around around culture and how how far you can push it really. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what made you leave a nice steady job with us, well paid, I assume, to go out on your own, uh, open up your own procurement consultancy? I think it was procurement to start off with, wasn't it? Yeah, there was there was. Um, I suppose the I then moved on to Punch actually Taverns, which are five and a half thousand pubs and restaurants. So I looked after the procurement of services um, for, for all of the pubs and restaurants across the group. And I took over as logistics director for the for the the, the company too. Um, but there was it, it, there was a bit of um, I mean what left why I left United Biscuits was um, was sort of office politics really. The, the procurement director I got on with so well, he went to Punch, took me along with him, and then at Punch um, the we were supporting two businesses, Punch and Spirit, and they we were very successful. We were in the middle, but the two um, cultures didn't really they, they they rubbed against each other. And we were this successful bit in the middle. And we we tried to persuade them that we could go away. We got the best price in the market because we had the biggest volumes. We got lots of deals with Guinness and Coke, and we knew all of the um, uh, you know the the bottom price in the marketplace and had that that knowledge. Uh, and we, we tried to persuade them that we could create this agency that operated for other companies. They could make some money. Uh, they didn't bite. So we all managed to engineer a redundancy and we set up a procurement consultancy. And I guess with our experience, within three years, we grew that to about three million pounds of turnover, 25 staff. Um, but yeah, I, I hit a, an interesting time. I was, I was not, never at home. I was uh, traveling all the time. I got my, I was married. I got my first child. I could see myself getting divorced if I wasn't careful. Uh, and there was a, you know, a life balance sort of situation for me and decision. And also I was rubbing with myself and one of the uh, co-directors was ex Sandhurst military, very finger pointy, would uh, promise 10 million pounds of cost reduction and expect Muggins and his team here to go and deliver it. Uh, and uh, we, we got to a point where I thought, actually, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna leave. I sold my share, one of my colleagues did too, and uh, set up on my own. I'm actually doing more, more people development and leadership development, which is my passion because I love the working with the team, with teams really, and people. So that's what I've done for 15 years and help companies cool. grow through their people. Sometimes procurement. I've worked with Diageo on procurement and helped them uh, develop online um, procurement content, which won a, a national award, international award, which for them, which was lovely. Uh, sometimes I dip into that arena, but it's a bit more around uh, elevating business as a whole these days, small to, to large. Let's, let's wind the tape back just for um, a few minutes. So you must have had some really tough negotiations um, exiting um, a partnership of a number of people. 
um, particularly probably when they didn't want to lose you, but you were doing it for um, family reasons, which is the best reasons of a whole lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was, it was health too. I'd had a major surgery, which I'd been, I knew I needed to have before my, my son was born. Uh, first son was born and I did that and it was like an express train. Then I was told to take six weeks off and the team wanted me to take two. And when I got back after two, um, I, I could barely stand up. I you know, needed to really needed more time. And so there was, there was a little collision of that. And I'm just thinking, reflecting about what was life really like and, and my own purpose in life and the contribution I wanted to make to the world really. Um, and I started to, to dream of pastures new. So yeah, there was um, a negotiation involved. It was probably, you know, if I look at, look back on it, I know you described it in the intro, or the intro as the, the copy is acrimonious. Um, I did have to take some legal advice and I think uh, I handled the negotiation in a, in a way that I'm still very proud of, even though it was very, quite stressful at the time, actually. It, it got a bit, it got a little bit unpleasant the other way. Um, I think I handled it very calmly uh, and I took advice and did it systematically. But, um, but you know, if I had to, I had to gain some reward out of what I, the effort that I put in really. Um, so it wasn't easy, it wasn't easy, but we, uh, we, we got through it and uh, I'm glad that I did it. Yeah, well done. Those conflict negotiations are really tricky, aren't they? People uh, totally underestimate how difficult they can be how sleepless nights are caused etc yeah. and uh, and uh, I often recommend to people you know that, that the shortest way is sometimes the best way I think that's called Occam's razor isn't it if you google it you know the shortest way is the fastest one we live quite near Occam in Surrey and uh, he was a nasty bit of work but he left Occam's razor on the on the on the uh, radar. Chris let's talk now I'm very interested in the um, Voice of America Business Elevation Show. Now you've been doing that for nine years and I know it costs you money. I know you got a lot of business from it, but um, it's uh, very, and a very interesting model. Can you share some of it with us? Yeah, yeah, and it's actually Voice America. So it's- um, Voice America, it's, I always it's, get it wrong. You, you always Thank get you. it wrong, never mind. It's, it's always, um, there's a difference between the two. One's a kind of commercial international show that people listen to um, when they're, where they're traveling. Uh, this one is an online, is the Voice America is the, describes themselves as the leading online radio platform. So my, my show is a little different to a, a podcast in the fact that it's, it does actually go live and it's aired live across the internet as it's, uh, as it's recorded. Uh, it's an hour every Friday and I've done this since September 2011, uh, interviewing thought leaders and experts from around the world. And it came about because uh, I'd, at the age of 40, I had... I'd set some quite ridiculous goals, I thought, when I was 28 and, and I had just bought a flat in London and was pretty broke. Uh, and my girlfriend had just left me. I was a bit of a low point. And I, I decided to, to write down on a bit of paper what life would be like when I'm 40, because I could never imagine never being that old. So I could be ridiculous. So I, I wrote all these things down, never think expecting them to happen. But on my 40th, I was there outside the house, I'd imagined. I got some financial freedom. I got my own company. Um, I wanted to play rock guitar to my friends and impress them. So I played the guitar to them. And the only thing that hadn't arrived was a dog uh, arrived three weeks later. So I set a new, I set some new goals. So I set a goal that I wanted to add value to over a million people beyond my client base. And, and it was really, um, it was, it was a giving back thing initially. And, and the fact that I love communicating um, and had come out of enjoying uh, organizing sessions like this and inviting people along and like you 
I started interviewing people and I thought, how could I take that a little bit further? So uh, the show, I said, it's weekly. I have a contract with Voice America. They approached me. I was very flattered and then I realized I had to pay them. So it wasn't quite so flattering. Um, but the model has enabled me to, uh, to connect with people and, and, and generate friends and connections around the world and with people who quite honestly would have no interest in me otherwise, I, I would imagine. Uh, and some of these people become friends, peers, and uh, you suddenly have this amazing network of talent around the world that you can draw upon. And, and a lot of people do listen. I think we were the most listened to show on out of 50 shows on the business network, a couple of, um, in 2019, um, access over 50 countries every month. Um, so we must be doing something right, I guess, really. And we aim to provide content that helps people to elevate their thinking and to um, improve their businesses. But for me, it's about also underpinned by doing business for good. You know, we've got problems in this world at the moment. We're the most intelligent species on the planet. Uh, and, um, but, but yet, you know, what we see right now is a, is a, is a, a result of our thinking and a, a result of that intelligence. And what we need is more wisdom. So I'm hoping to just share a little bit more wisdom through the show to help um, people contribute to this bigger picture and improve things. Brilliant, Chris. So if anyone's watching live or on YouTube or listening to this on my podcast, how do they how do they uh, uh, sign up for Voice America? Yeah, if you go to voiceamerica.com and then you, you Google Chris Cooper in there, you'll get to the Business Elevation Show. And in there, there's an archive with, with 400 shows in there. They're all available for free. You can listen to them on demand. You can download them. So that's voiceamerica.com. And if you put Chris Cooper, Chris Cooper in the box, you'll get to my show as every Friday, but you can access all the archive uh, going back to 2011. Fantastic. Now, you told me that uh, Jack Canfield was probably the most famous person that uh, that you interviewed. Uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul author made an absolute uh, fortune, was a school teacher. Yep, that's yep. the book. And how many versions of that? Uh, uh, our outs are uh, thousands. How did you get hold of him and uh, how did you find that interview? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's been lots of lots of interviews, obviously, over the time. Jack, what, what, I, what I'm always been and I've always done with people is when I, I have connected with a, a great guest and I've had a good show, um, I cheekily ask them at that point, you know, is there anybody that you know in your network who you think would be um, great for the show? And, and through that, there's been all sorts of surprises I've interviewed interviewed the saxophone player from Dire Straits and uh, all sorts of different people as a result of it. But this came with um, with somebody uh, I interviewed. They connected me through with uh, Jack, and I think I interviewed them with Jack too. And um, yeah, uh, he was one of my kind of heroes, really. I, I was always um, very impressed with Chicken Soup for the Soul, how he'd been rejected 140 times, him and Mark Victor Hansen, uh, for, for getting that book published. Uh, and they kept going and, and the resilience involved. And eventually they underwrote that book uh, themselves and said to the publisher, how many books do we need, a book publisher, how many books do we need to sell? And they said 10,000. Okay, we'll underwrite those if you'll publish. 500 million copies and 120 variations sold since, even part of the Chinese state curriculum, apparently. So Jack, um, I found fascinating. I'll never forget, actually, I, I said to him at the beginning of the interview that I'm Jack, actually, I've done a lot of interviews, but I'm a little bit nervous because I've read a lot of your content and, and I'll never forget. He said, gee, uh, Chris, um, don't, don't you worry about that. It's, um, it's really, um, 
not a problem. I feel the same way sometimes. And I said, when? He said, um, when I'm talking to Obama. <laughs> um, one of the things I think with um, with Jack, one of the little, not things stick out, but he always talks about E plus R equals O. So, um, so E equals, anybody know what that is? E plus R, or it's on silent, E plus O? I've, um, I've heard of that before. I think it's got something to do with energy plus resilience equals outcome. How about that? Was that a good guess? Uh, it was it, close. It was event um, plus response equals outcome. And that is basically if anything happens, so we're going through life and to every day, there's always, um, there's always these little events that happen and how you respond to them will determine the outcome. So if you're, if you're, you know, if you're grumpy, you'll have a negative ripple. Uh, if you're, if you're um, positive and energized around that, you'll probably get a better outcome, but you know, life's just full of those little moments, isn't it? So if we, if we make sure that our response is uh, the best version that we can, we can create in that moment, then it's likely that the outcome will be, um, will be more positive too. And the consolidation of all those little moments um, will lead to, uh, I guess, how successful you are in life, or how happy your family you have, etc. Yeah, no, absolutely. I remember bumping into Jack Canfield at the um, National Speaking Convention in um, in New Orleans, and I was with Simon Zucci, uh, our friend, and Simon's really up front, and he said, uh, there's Jack Canfield over there, I'm going to go and talk to him. Um, are you coming? And I sort of hesitated for a minute, and he was off, whoosh. So we went up to him, and uh, he obviously had a few bottles of wine at that point, and we said, Jack, how did you, how did you do it, writing uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul? And he told me he'd been rejected 62 times. I think the number probably changes every time yeah. somebody <laughs> asks him that question. And then I said, well, you know, how did you, how did you, you and Mark Victor Hansen actually write it? And he said, Derek, we went away for two days and we had six bottles of wine the first night. And about three o'clock in the morning, we suddenly had this crazy idea of uh, chicken soup for the soul. And I went, is that how you do it? He said, yeah. I said, I think I better get some, uh, get some wine in when I get back to the, uh, get to the UK and at that, that point he went up in the lift and I think he probably fell over but um, he was a school teacher I think wasn't he? Yeah he was he was a school teacher and they then they started set the business up and they started talking around schools and then conferences and um, built up this idea people started sharing stories at these events and they decided to um, put these stories into into a book but that that kind of philosophy had never been seen before no one had really done that and there was no genre then called self-development um, but he was he was fun. We actually, when I got my my book published, we we approached his um, agent because uh, we thought well, if if Mark if he managed to get a, a, a deal, uh, and um, I was slightly embarrassed on the show because I got a deal within three weeks, which is one of the benefits of the show. So it was slightly embarrassing, but because my book's only sold a fraction of that, so maybe I needed a few rejections first to improve it. Yeah, no. So <laughs> who else have you had on the show, and what can you um, what can we learn from them? Oh, my word. I think um, oh, loads of people. One of the pe people I've really enjoyed is uh, Ivan Meisner, the founder of BNI. And I've interviewed Ivan uh, a couple of times before. And Ivan very kindly wrote the forward to my book. Uh, and one of the things I remember with Ivan is he asked him about success. And he said, he said, well, we did a bit of research into this. We, we, we researched about 80 people uh, who some about half of them are really successful. And about half of we deemed weren't. I don't know how you made the, the cut between the two. And we realized that everybody really understood the principles of success. 
Um, however, what we concluded was that the really successful people were those who um, were prepared to get the things done that the less successful people weren't. Um, so it was about, I guess, going that extra mile, you know, picking the phone up, all those sorts of things. It was actually the, uh, the kind of uh, doing those, uh, being prepared to do those tasks that others weren't. But he was, what I liked about him, and I think I also really, there was a gentleman called Marshall Thurber, whose son, I've forgotten his first name, but uh, he's, he's a big movie producer. Marshall, very successful man, um, lawyer and uh, attorney and uh, coach to, to Tony Robbins, um, I believe. Um, the thing they had in common, I remember with Marshall at the end of an interview, him, he spent, he spent half an hour asking me questions and I just felt, I felt really special, you know, that this guy was so successful. Uh, I think he had seven homes around the world, um, which a few more than I've got, I have, um, obviously. Um, but he um, was really, really engaging and he just kept asking me questions and I felt really special. And at the end of that conversation, a little like Jack had, sorry, I, um, Ivan had done with me, I asked him, what was, um, what was, what's, you know, what's the most important thing when it comes to success in business and life? When it, for your, from your perspective, and he says this, he said, Chris, be more interested than interesting. And, and, I, and I found that, I've, I've thought about that a lot. And Ivan did that too. Ivan spent 45 minutes with me on one call, just finding out about me, seeing how he could help me. And uh, he adopted the same principle. I think if we were all more, you know, everybody was more interested in other people mm. and just trying to show how great they, they are, uh, I think that would, um, would be very helpful. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that comes originally, doesn't that come originally from uh, Dale Carnegie, How to Influence yes. and Influence People? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's got it there. It you does. It comes from there. Yeah. You can't help thinking it came from Socrates and Plato and some of the other uh, greatest people in the world, can you? Because uh, that's the magic of um, really high achieving leaders, isn't it? The people that have got that charisma. Um, yeah. And Will Kintish, show who's on somewhere, I think I think he's on today, um, and I've discussed that a lot. We have discussed it here on uh, on Monday mm -hmm. night as well, and it's really important to ask those questions. Mm. Who else, Chris? Who else comes to mind? I know uh, there was a lot, so many people. Yeah, I mean, I've met all sorts of uh, people. I mean, I'm just just go, going through. A quick, I've got a few little books here, actually. This one, Dan Rome was very interesting. Draw to Win. That's a quite a a, a good little book. Yeah. It's about um, he's hugely successful. He draws pictures, and when he when he does business pictures, it's all all um, in drawings. And what Dan did was he he drew a, um, a a series of pictures to help explain Obamacare. And suddenly, out of nowhere, he gets a phone call uh, from the White House saying, "Can you come?" Um, uh, could you come to the White House and explain Obamacare to us? Uh, and eventually what he did was a series of pictures, which was extended across the States and, and hit me the media to explain Obamacare in pictures. And sometimes I think the pictures say a, a thousand words. So that's a, a nice little, little thing to kind of think about. Um, I, uh, I love this guy. He's a good, really good friend of mine, David Fox Pitt, um, positive erosity. David is the most positive guy I've ever met. He's raised 40 million for charity and he puts on extreme events um, in Scotland and uh, about to do one in Barbados, I think, which is, and, and I completed in his quadrathlon a couple of years ago uh, and did a, a full day as a result of being inspired by David uh, and uh, swam across Loch Tay and then ran over 15 
uh, Monroe, so seven Monroes, seven mile kayak, 37 mile hilly bike ride. So if he could get me to do that, he's got to be a, some, uh, some positive guy. So he's really impressive. Um, other places, um, I was thinking, um, I interviewed a guy um, called Dr. Mansour Malik and Mansour is, he created something called the International Diplomatic Business Club. And he's um, of Pakistani origin. He lives in Dubai now. And he created um, some, some groups which extended to a membership of 3,000 uh, with um, ambassadors, uh, senior members of royal families and senior business people and gain an award from the Queen for doing that. Um, and one of the things um, he really talks about is about the importance of love. And uh, I don't think I've had a radio interview where I've had so many messages from around the world. And it surprised me because he's very spiritual. He's quite a religious man. He's got a strong accent and I wasn't really sure how this interview would come across. Um, but as a, a consequence of that, I ended up going out to Turkey. He invited me out to Turkey to Konya and uh, invited me to experience the um, the um, Rumi celebrations, if you're familiar with the the um, old sort of prophet and wise uh, fellow called Rumi uh, from the 13th century. And I found myself sitting with ambassadors and um, watching the whirling dervishes uh, do their ceremony. And I got to in, in, in interview uh, the head of the whirling dervishes and some spiritual leaders and found myself on, on, um, on, on TV. Uh, and that was really thought provoking actually for me. Um, in fact, I, one of the things that I, you know, I, I do believe that we, you know, we can learn a lot from wisdom and you mentioned Aristotle back there. Mm. And one of the things that struck me was, and has, and has, has been a theme because you, you, you pick up themes from people is that, you know, there's a need for us to be more caring and thoughtful and, 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 and kind in, in business and in, in life really. And if we're going to bring people together. And, and what surprised me was the hotel that I stayed in in Konya, which was a, a Novotel, was I got I interviewed the hotel manager because they run their business based upon Rumi principles. Are, are, you, are you familiar with the with Rumi? No, I think you better. Well, I'm not, so yeah, no, uh, there's no. a chance one or two others yeah. are. So Rumi, there's if you Google Rumi, R-U-M-I, you'll you'll find discover that I think it was a couple of years ago. Rumi was Rumi's poetry was the number one selling poetry in the United States. Um, there's also uh, places like it, Iran, Rumi is, is huge. And, uh, and Rumi wrote a, a, lot of, a lot of kind of poetry and prose, which is inspiring people. I think, I'm trying to think which of the big businesses, and there's a really famous big business that um, was inspired by Rumi. Um, and some lovely quotes, and, and I'll, share, I'll share a poem, actually. So this poem, I discovered this, this was written on the, each line, there's seven lines to this poem, and, and each line was on, on um, the, uh, a different room um, in this hotel I stayed at in Konya, because they run their hotel based around this poem. And I got the most amazing, amazing customer service in this hotel. They just looked after me like a crown prince. It was unbelievable. And um, this poem, and I could, I could maybe send this to you, Derek, um, it goes like this. In compassion and grace, be like the sun. In concealing others' faults, be like the night. In generosity and helping others, be like a river. And this hotel was absolutely like a river with its generosity. Um, 
In anger and fury, be like the dead. In modesty and humility, be like the earth. In tolerance, be like the sea. Either appear as you are or be as you appear. Uh, and I, I sort of remind myself of that poem sometimes because I think it's some really lovely principles in there about life and living. And I think we do need to return a little bit back to realizing what's important. Absolutely, Chris. And if you uh, if you send that to me, I'll put it as an attachment to next week's uh, briefing so anyone can uh, get that uh, if they want to. Chris, I know you've had Will Kintish and me on your show. Yeah. You haven't mentioned us. Clearly, we were quite a long way down the bat in order of people that provided you with information. Well, I've got a story about you, Derek. Oh, no, Chris. Uh, I, I, got, I got somebody called me up after our interview, the first one that we did, because Derek's been on the show twice and said, what a... What a wonderful man and what a really interesting show that was. And uh, and that person was my mother. <laughs> I thought I was going to get embarrassed for a minute there, but it was your mum. That's, uh, that's my okay. mum. She really enjoyed that one. Oh, good. Well, good on good on your mum, Chris. Good on your <laughs> mum. Chris, now, I know you're a philanthropist. Um, you've set high goals. Uh, you want to give um, as much knowledge and wisdom away to a million people. And I think you've achieved that goal through your... Uh, radio show but you've got a road in Leicester named after you what was that all about <laughs> well, one of the um one of the opportunities that I that I um, had it actually came through through the show I had a, a client called Everard's Brewery for um for many for many years I think I probably worked on and off for with Everard's for maybe 15 or 16 years and uh, I interviewed a wonderful managing director um Stephen uh, and I did. I do some work around purpose with with companies and business leaders. And I did this process with him and helped him understand his purpose. And, and what I really love through the journey that I've been with them has been um, how how some of the things I've done with them has had an impact. And I, I interviewed Stephen on the show. There's a there's um, a recent interview with Stephen Gould. That's Stephen with the P around Everard's Meadows. And you might want to have a listen to it because it's quite inspiring. And um, what I did with Stephen was I uh, was I interviewed him and he said after the show, he said, Chris, tell me about business elevation. I like that concept. And we hadn't maybe worked for a couple of years. And I, and I went over, he invited me to go to his house, which I thought was a bit strange. And they got this secret project and it was the their biggest pro elevation project in their history. And they've been going since 1849. And basically whatever ours had done, um, and they asked me if I would be involved with leading this project. Um, was they they had a, a brewery, a large brewery, uh, which was was providing a drink for a lot of other companies, but not at very high margins. But this site was part of a 12 million visited um, shopping complex, and the shopping complex wanted to buy the site, but they happened to own 90 acres across the road, with about 70 acres of that being floodplain. And what they've done is they built a new a new visitor center and brewery. Um, brewery, um, craft brewery, but created a, an amazing centre with a lovely cycle uh, cycle facility and cycle routes. They've opened up 70 acres of land for local people to be able to enjoy, and it's really thriving now. Lovely coffee shop. There's other things happening there as well. And they've given that out 70 acres across the community, and it connects up with the Sustrans cycle route um, via a bridge that they built. Uh, and and they've um, just spent a quarter of a million pound around um, kind of regeneration and improving um, trees and all that sort of thing. And it's just a lovely example, I think, of um, 
you know, giving back and, and engaging the community in a vision. And I was heavily involved in that. And it, it, it's, um, there's a road there, which is called Cooper Way. Uh, and um, I believe that uh, that Cooper, Cooper um, uh, was a little nod to myself. And also, of course, Cooper, Cooper's made barrel rings as well. So it fitted really nicely. So I'm uh, very proud of that, actually. I think you're being a bit modest there. It obviously was, um, <laughs> was um, named after you. We're nearly coming to the end of the uh, formal part of the interview. So any questions for Chris, please put them in the chat box. But before we do that, Chris, let me, uh, let me fire a few questions that we got in the chat box. The first one's from Nigel. Chris, did you use any data science techniques when assessing pricing? Oh my word, data science techniques, gosh. Data science. Sounds like the answer to that's no. Then. <laughs> yeah. Well, course, I mean, I don't know. Um, I don't know about data science techniques. As I'm going back a little while since um, mm. I was involved with all these contracts and things, we would we would um, just generally be um, you know getting a sense of. I mean, but we probably did you know with things like utility pricing and gas and uh, and uh, those utilities. They were a little bit more complex, you know predicting when to buy in and when not. And we did get involved in sort of modeling and things like that. And each seg sector that we, that we, that I kind of ran, we always had a strategy and we did a market research piece on every single category. And we did the same when we were buying for, we bought um, for people like Scottish and Newcastle, we reviewed all of their costs and saved them about 10 million pounds um, and Pizza Express and Nando's. And we would, we would uh, use a, a combination of anything that was available to get a sense around price, but also um, a lot of price benchmarking versus deals we've done before as well, I would imagine. I don't know if that answers the question. I maybe ought to ask what um, that gentleman's uh, perception of what dates, data science uh, is about. Yeah, really. we can do that later, Chris. There's another question in the... Uh, Gabrielle, who uh, has done some NLP work with us and... Uh, she says there is a field of right and wrong and she will see you in the field beyond Chris. I think that's, uh, oh, I think that's, a, that's a compliment uh, for a uh, lovely what, one. I, what I used to call that's, the wacky. That's a roomy, say, that's a roomy quote, I think. Is that Thank a roomy you know. quote? Oh, there yeah. you go. Um, um, from Godfrey, he says, when you were 28, you sent uh, personal goals. How young were you when you first decided what contribution you wanted to make to the world? I, I think... <laughs> For, for me, I mean, I, I was brought up in Scunthorpe. I was expected to be a follow follow the family and be a steel worker. So um, I guess you know, for me, my horizons, my horizons kind of gradually, gradually developed. I knew there was something inside me that didn't want to do what my dad did, and uh, it's a particular story why I, I we happened to beat the CEO of British Steel, and he asked me uh, at a, an open evening if I wanted to go and work there uh, when I was older, and I said he must be joking. And my dad yelled at me all the way home and said, you might want to work there one day. And, and, and it came out of me. I just said, but dad, you're not happy there. Why would I want to work there? And I think that was the first little moment when I realized that I didn't want to stay in Scunthorpe and there was maybe more for me. And, and I guess, you know, from going on a placement year and going to university and remember my first placement year, they had to have a chat with me. I was down in London because no one understood me because I was so Northern. Um, uh, my horizons merged, but it was only at the age of 28, and I was working for Mars then, that I did a programme called Landmark, and a friend recommended me, rendered Landmark to me um, at the training, 
director at Mars. And uh, I did this program and it just transformed everything for me, actually, three days. And I, I came out of it you know, with much more confidence and so many little things happened during those three days that uh, is, as they, they say, it's a significant landmark in many people's life. And for me, it was. And it was coming out of that, that I sat in this room feeling before I felt a little sorry for myself. Uh, I think my girlfriend at the time had just cheated with the managing director and we'd said goodbye. Uh, I'm pleased we didn't get never married, but it was, uh, I was feeling a bit sorry down in the dumps and I just got this piece of paper and I just decided to write down what life would be like at 40 and everything from that moment started to improve. What's really interesting about goal setting is the real trick is to write it down, isn't it? And a lot of people don't get that, but you have to write it down and keep looking at them. Chris, before we close, I can't resist this. And some people will understand where I'm coming from. You've come to me. You've come with me to watch Arsenal. Martin Cairns, a Leicester City supporter, has come with me to watch Arsenal. In those days, we beat you. But um, something magic has happened to transform Leicester City. And I wondered what leadership it was that uh, that's changed it. For those of you who don't know, Leicester City is a, is a team that's been punching above their weight for about six years. Won the uh, Premiership uh, uh, six years ago when uh, no one said they could. In fact, there were about 5,000 to one with the bookies at the beginning of the season. Uh, what can we learn from Leicester City? Well, I think what you, I think what you can learn, I think there is... There is some real wisdom tied up in the the, the sort of Buddhist philosophy uh, that um, that the family kind of possess, and they are very they they are generous to um, their fans. Um, they will lead into decisions. I mean, we've, I felt that when Ranieri went, that was a tough call they made to get rid of him. But what they've done is they've created this culture. You know, it sounds to me from what I everything I hear, and I have been in there and had meetings um, that they have created this, this culture, this philosophy that people buy into. It's a very supportive, nurturing, but, but high-performing culture. And they're prepared to invest. So they just invested $100 million in a, a training center. But I think it's this combination. You know, for me, engagement is something I'm passionate about. You know, my dad hated his, his, his work, and I thought that was sad after 40 years, or the environment anyway, not the people. And I think what they've done is they've They've, this philosophy, this coaching philosophy, this caring, being um, ambitious, but bringing everybody along with you, um, you know, giving a little bit of time to kind of develop. But it's, it's and, and believing in, you know, young people really as well. People, they haven't spent a huge amount of money, but they helped them realize that they were capable of more, I think. And, and this team philosophy they have is, is really strong as well. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm as amazed as you are. I, I was either going and watched get beaten by you uh, a couple, two or three years ago. And, and, and now it is, it is a lovely to be a part of this. And, uh, and uh, it was lovely to be a part of the winning year. I still, I still keep pinching myself and I'm, I'm missing being back in the stadium, really. It's very inspiring. And um, they made some good decisions. And life is all about making good decisions as well, isn't it? Good decisions on the managers and good decisions on, on the players, as far as I can see. And there's some pretty crummy decisions made in football. Chris, we're coming to the end of the interview. Chris, uh, how do people get in touch with you if, they, if they're interested in what you do? And uh, how do they get your book? Oh, yeah, my, my book should be, should be available on Amazon. That's my um, power to get things done, whether you feel like it or not. Um, which was uh, yeah, written because at the time I realised I needed a bit of therapy to because I was doing the things I liked doing rather than things I needed to do to run a successful business. 
So that that came from that. Um, that should be available on, on Amazon. Um, to get in touch, you can email me at chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Uh, you can um, join me on LinkedIn or, or Facebook. Uh, I'm not the most um, brilliant at uh, using social media. My assistant's better than I am. Um, but yeah, feel free to email me. Um, chriscooper.co.uk is the website. Uh, I'm always happy to talk, connect, help. Um, and um, yeah, that's... Uh, and it's exciting, I think, the next few years, you know, it's what an opportunity we have now to improve things. So uh, let's, all, you know, let's all look at ways that, that we can come together and contribute to a better world, I think. Chris, fantastic. Thanks. Uh, thanks for joining the Monday Night Chat Show. Uh, we'll, we'll get you back on at some stage. Will you, will you stay on when I stop the recording to uh, other questions? So uh, whether you're watching this on YouTube or, the, or listening to this on the podcast, thanks for joining me. I'm Derek Harden. And thanks to my guest tonight, uh, Chris. Cooper.